Welcome to Edgemont Bible Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, where our mission is to glorify God by guiding people into a discipleship relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's listen in to today's message. Turn over to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. I read this last week. I want to read it again and then go over to uh, Psalm 19. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Last week I talked about how in my counseling over the past several couple of years, a couple of years, more families are dealing with issues that their, uh, their, their kids are coming home with about some of the things about the very existence of God and some of the various issues in our culture today. And uh, it's troubled the, the kids and it's troubled the parents. And uh, that has led to what I spoke on last week and speaking on this week. And uh, because they're, they, are, they are fearful. The kids don't know how to answer the accusations. Um, and the parents don't know how to tell their kids how to answer the accusations. The so fear and intimidation. He says, do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Always be ready. And I talked about how, you know what? This means we have to prepare. If we're going to be able to confront the secularists and skeptics of our time, um, and uh, then we're going to have to prepare for it. We're going to have to be ready. Because it's not that it may happen, it will happen. It has happened. And it's troubled many young people. Being ready to make a defense, there's that word, to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Psalm 19, verse 1. Psalm 19, verse 1. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory. Notice the heavens declare, or the heavens are telling. The heavens are declaring something. They're telling us something. And so we, we need to listen to what the heavens are declaring. Well, it says here that the heavens declare what? The glory of God. The skies proclaim. There it is again. They're proclaiming something. They're declaring something. Skies proclaim the works of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. So, Every day, every night, all through time, these things are speaking and saying something. Paul says that evidence from nature, 
evidence from nature is so strong that if a person doesn't believe it, they are without excuse. In Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, he says, For what may be known, again, we can know, about God is plain to them because God has made it plain. For since the creation, there is the natural theology I was talking about last time. For since creation of the world's God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood by His workmanship, there is the creation, so that men are without excuse. And so we can learn something from that. The material world can tell us a lot about God, but it's limited. It really doesn't tell us what God, all right? And of course, there's, a, there's hundreds and hundreds of gods, you know. You know, the one group say, well, the God that we believe it's saying is this God or this God or these gods or whatever. It can't reveal to us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It can't tell us that Jesus died for our sins and that we're sinners and, and he rose again. Can't tell us that. But it does tell us a lot. And so we need to pay attention to natural theology. It is important. In 1 Corinthians 2 9, Paul said, There are things that the eyes have not seen. Okay. There are things that the eyes haven't seen and the ears haven't heard. And so that's basically natural theology the things that we see and experience and in, in what God has made. But then in verse 10 it says, there are things that God has to reveal. And that's where we get to special revelation. Okay? And one of the things that we do in, in, in our evangelism is there are some people that you're not going to start with special revelation with those people because they don't believe in there's a God. They believe there, there, it's no proof that there's a God. So I start over here with natural revelation to give them the evidence, scientific evidence, like second law of thermodynamics, like I shared last week, like the fact that the universe had a beginning. Therefore, if it had a beginning, then uh, it, uh, it had a cause. It began, you know, the universe is expanding, which means that it began from a point and began to expand. And so, um, so last week I talked about the, the Kalam argument for um, the existence of God. Uh, three premises, if you'll remember. Number one, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Number two, the universe began to exist. Number three, the universe had a cause. And uh, that argument gives us compelling reasons for believing in the existence of an un caused, timeless, spaceless, changeless, immaterial, very, very powerful personal creator. Okay? And uh, no, 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 notice I said a compelling reason, because it doesn't give us a hundred percent proof. There are very few things that we can know a hundred percent when you really think about it. Um, um, uh, but, but, but even though we can't know them 100%, or we can't prove them, we're still sure about them. Uh, for example, when I got up, I drank some coffee. 
I can't prove that to you, but I know I did. I, uh, I, I know that, uh, I know that uh, kindness is a virtue. I know I love my wife. I can't prove those things to you, but I, I know they're true. Um, we've heard the phrase, uh, proof beyond reasonable doubt. And uh, proof beyond reasonable doubt, that's a standard they use in criminal courts. They don't try to get 100% proof. That, that, that's impossible. They want to get a proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It, means, it simply means that according to the evidence, there is no other reasonable explanation except that the person is guilty or innocent. Um, scientists use that all the time, you know. Scientists are great philosophers. They, uh, I, I get some people, they start talking about science and, and, and say, well, and they begin to say, well, this, that's science. I said, well, that, that's not science at all. That's philosophy. You're, you know. Um, scientists used, uh, use it all the time. Lawyers use it all the time. Theologians use it all the time. They call it cumulative case inference. It's kind of the same thing. Cumulative. You accumulate evidence, and then you infer something is true or something is false. In other words, you come up with a number. You do this. I do this. All right? In other words, you come up with a number of possible explanations. And then, from those possible explanations, you infer which explanation is the best. It'd be kind of like if you came home one day and uh, you got up that morning, you're sending the kids off to school, and you say, okay, when I get home, we're having an early supper, so, uh, so n- no snacking when you get home. And so you walk in the door, and there on the counter is a fudge-sickle wrapper and a stick with no fudge-sickle on it. And so you ask all the kids, uh, who, who ate the fudge-sickle, who ate the fudge-sickle? And nobody, you know, oh, I don't know, I don't, you know. And you begin to, so to speak, gather evidence. You... Uh, well, you know, Billy, he, he couldn't have eaten the fudgesickle because he just got home from football practice about the time you got home. So you got that piece of evidence. Susie was sitting on the back patio in the back with her boyfriend, and yes, that's possible. She could have walked come in and got that thing and scarfed it down. Um, uh, Susie also said she heard Johnny in the kitchen earlier. So, you know, you've got that evidence. And then you... Go see Johnny, and Johnny has fudge-sickle drippings on the front of his T-shirt. And so based on the cumulative evidence, you infer Johnny ate the fudge-sickle and lied that he didn't eat it. And so that's, that's what it is. It's, like I said, scientists do it all the time. Lawyers, theologians, me, and you. We do this all the time. Another example is an electron. An electron is a subatomic particle, and it's smaller than an atom. 
Nobody has ever seen an electron. Nobody has ever seen an electron. But scientists infer they exist. They can't prove it. Really, there's very, like I said, there's very little that we can really prove a hundred percent. Professor, uh, uh, physics professor Art Hobson of the University of Arkansas, he said, we infer the existence of electrons by their effects. In other words, by the evidence that we see. You know? He goes on, for example, static electricity when socks come out of a dryer. Lightning, light bulbs, modern electronics, all these things infer the existence of electrons. But we can't see them, and we really can't prove them 100%. I found a, a guy, well, I find a guy, found an author who's a guy, by the name of J, J, uh, uh, J. Warner Wallace. He's a Christian author, and he is a retired cold case homicide detective. And he wrote several books, one of them called Cold Case Christianity. And using his experience as a homicide detective, he would gather evidence, for example, as to did Jesus Christ really live? He would gather evidence, did Jesus Christ really die and rise again? He would gather the evidence of, uh, did, is there a, a creator? How did the universe come to existence? Is it really interesting what he says and how he does it? And then he said this. He said, if you were a suspect of a homicide and uh, a witness saw you, he said, that is one piece of evidence, just one piece of evidence. But then he has a second piece of evidence. Your alibi just doesn't gel. You don't have a good alibi. And there's another, a third piece of evidence. Your fingerprints were found on the knife. There was another piece of evidence your DNA was discovered at the scene of the crime. So you have all these various pieces of evidence. And then Wallace writes this, quote, If this were the case, I'd have a lot more evidence from different categories, some direct evidence, eyewitness, some indirect evidence, you know, the alibi and the fingerprints and all that stuff. These are the kinds of evidence that make a cumulative case convincing. It's not just that we have lots of evidence pointing to the same conclusion, but it's also that the evidence is from a variety of sources and categories. The case for God's existence is very similar. Now, last week, we looked at one category, the cosmological, the cosmos, the universe, the fact that the universe is here. That was 
the category that we talked about last week. Well, today I want to talk about a different category of evidence. It's called the, the, uh, the uh, uh, teleological. And that just simply means, it's a Hebrew word that means design. The universe has design to it. All right? And so uh, teleology points to a purpose of something. It points to a goal or purpose that something has. That's the reason it exists, is because of its purpose. Uh, the purpose of a washing machine is to wash clothes, all right? The purpose of, uh, uh, of this microphone is to amplify my voice. Now, there's design in a washing machine and in a microphone, design, and design always points to a purpose. And, of course, purpose always points to a designer. That somebody conceived of the idea of a washing machine, drew the plans up, and then built one. Built one. William Paley. William Paley is a, was a Christian apologist, philosopher, and, uh, and an author. William Paley died in 1805. William Paley wrote a book that has become kind of a classic, famous book. Uh, and the title of it is Natural Theology. And in that book, Paley gave what is one of the most recognizable, even to today, of the tele uh, teleological design argument for the existence of God. And, and, and you, you, you're probably familiar with it or have heard about it or, or something in the past, but it's called the watchmaker argument. And uh, uh, Paley tells about how you're, you're hiking through the woods, you and your son and your daughter. And as you're hiking through the woods, you come upon a big old rock. And your son says, Dad, how do you suppose that rock got there? And uh, you say, well, I, I don't know, that rock's... Who knows how that rock got there? That rock may have been there for 100 years or 200 years or a million years. Just a rock. And you keep walking. As you walk a little further down the path, your son looks down, and there's a watch, and he picks it up. And he says, Dad, how do you suppose that watch got there? Does Dad say the same thing about the watch that he said about the rock? No. Why not? Because when you examine the watch, you discover something about the watch that you didn't discover about the rock. You see, the watch shows signs of design, purpose. It shows signs of an intelligent being that conceived of the idea of a watch, how it would work, and then he made a watch. He, a watchmaker. That's what we call him, a watchmaker. Now, Paley goes on, he talks about this, and, and it's really interesting. Paley, really, in, in the book, he gives many examples, not just a watch. Uh, he talks about the eyes and the kidneys and all these things, you know. And, uh, but he says there's two characteristics about the watch that point to a designer. 
Number one, the watch performs a function. What's that? It tells time. All right. Number two, the parts of the watch are designed to specific specifications. And they produce motion. There's gears in there, and they just interlock perfectly. And they produce motion, and it causes these to point to the hour and the minute. Now, if you eliminate any part, if you eliminate any one of the parts of a watch, you take it out. Or if you change any part of the watch, you make a part smaller or larger or thicker or thinner. Or, or, or you arrange the parts a different way. Well, if you do that, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's not going to perform the function for which it was made. You see, a watch's ability to keep time depends on the precise shape, size, and arrangement of the parts. Number one, the watch performs a function. Number two, the parts are designed for specific specifications. That's true. That's true of your car. That's true of your iPhone. That's true of your toaster. That's true of your refrigerator. That's true of, of this building. As a design, it points to a specific function. Well, some who try to avoid this whole idea of God, uh, they say, well, we, we, we know that it looks like the, the watch was designed, it, it, but it really wasn't designed. It only appears to have been designed. There really wasn't a watchmaker, you know. It just looks like there was a watchmaker. This watch really just accidentally evolved over a period of time. Stray bits of metal came together somehow, and they assembled themselves some way, and uh, some of the metal, uh, uh, for no purpose at all, uh, formed a disc. Other pieces of metal, for no purpose at all, formed a, a screw, uh, another uh, a spring, and then, then, uh, then a gear. You know, there, it only appears to have a designer. But really, it was just a mindless process that remarkably and accidentally formed this instrument that actually tells time. You know. Well, the cumulative inference is, when you think about it, what is the evidence, you ask yourself? What explanation makes sense? What explanation is more reasonable to believe and understand? That it came into existence by accident or there was a watchmaker? Well, there was a watchmaker. It's, it's interesting, they admit it looks designed. That's because it was designed, you know. You, know, you take a book, you know, just anything, you take anything, take a book. Does it make sense that paper and ink just kind of somehow over years and 
millions and years just kind of came together. And it came together, and over more time, it formed letters. And as more time and more time went on, it formed sentences. And in more time and more time and more time, it told a story. The grapes of wrath, you know. What's the more reasonable? What's the more rational? What's the most scientific evidence explanation here? Well, we know. We know what it is. It shows a design because there is a watchmaker. When I was preparing this, I went out and, and uh, I, uh, I'm going to talk about a mousetrap. I went to the hardware store. I said, well, I'm going to have one of these uh, uh, show, uh, what, what, not show and tell, but uh, what am I trying to say? A what? Illustration, yeah. Eh, well, I, 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 it doesn't matter. So I went to the hardware store and I picked up a mousetrap. Oh, man, mousetrap's so little, you know. Ah, there was a rat trap. So I picked up this rat trap, you know, showed it to Pam, and he said, yeah, I'm going this was several weeks ago, and I said, I'm going to use this as an illustration. And, and so I put that thing, you know, where I wouldn't lose it. Now I searched and searched and searched yesterday, <laughs> and uh, even searched a little bit this morning and could not find my rat trap. But knowing that you're all familiar with rat mouse traps and rat traps, you go out and buy your mouse trap. Teach this to your kids. Use, you know, you can come up with a lot of different explanations to show your kids. Well, a mouse trap consists of a wooden platform. That's kind of the main thing there. And all the parts of the mousetrap are attached to that platform. And then there's a, a spring. One end of the spring is attached to the wooden platform. The other end of the spring is connected to what it, they call the hammer. Now, the hammer... That's what squashes the mouse. And uh, uh, you, you know how it works. You pull the hammer back, and then there's a little holding bar that you bring over the hammer, and then there is a little metal thing called the catch that you put the holding bar under, and it just holds that holding bar. And then there's a little plate by, on the catch where you put your cheese. Now it's all ready to catch a mouse. A mouse trap is an example of what is called irreducible complexity. And what that simply means, it's, it's a com- the mouse trap, like a lot of things, the mouse trap is a complex uh, uh, contraption for killing mice. And it does that through interacting parts which all contribute to catching and killing the mice. Now, if you take any part out of that, it's not going to work. That's what irreducible complexity is. You can't reduce any part, and it would still work. Ask your son, ask your daughter as you're teaching them about evidence for God and design specifically. Ask them if 
You know, if we took about the wooden platform, or if we took out the hammer, or if we took out the, the holding bar, or if we took out the catch, what would happen? You know, show them. Illustrate it to them. You know, the mousetrap is just like the universe. You know, they say the universe evolves slowly, step by step by step, over billions and billions and billions of years. The platform evolved, the wooden platform evolved, then time went on, the hammer evolved, and then the spring evolved, and the, uh, the, the, the holding bar, and then the catch. That all evolved over a long, long time. Of course, during the whole time, no mice were being caught. Um, each part, but here's what, here's what evolution says. Each part must have some advantage. What survival advantage would a wooden base have if it didn't have the spring or the catch, you know? None. Uh, A wooden platform can't evolve, and then a wooden platform can't think, I now need a spring, and a spring can't think. Evolution doesn't think. It doesn't do any of that. Looks like there's a lot of thinking behind a mousetrap. You can apply the same thing to just about anything. Not just about anything. Anything. Paley applied it to, like I said, a variety of things. You know, the eye. There's the cornea and the lens, and those help to focus the light on the, uh, what's it called, the retina. And then the retina converts the light uh, to uh, uh, electrochemical uh, impulses, and those impulses travel on the optic nerve to the brain. And now I can see you. You can see me. The eye is a re- irreducible co- has irreducible complexity. You take any one of those things out, and it's not going to work. And if a cornea evolves... What advantage is that without all the other parts? None. Oh, that's what natural selection is. It, if, if it's an advantage to the organism, then it moves and keeps going. The eye, the mousetrap, and the watch has to come as a package deal. It has to come as a package deal. And yet, according to Darwin, the eye couldn't come as a package deal. Evolution teaches millions of years, incremental steps is what forms something. Probably one of the best known signs of design, of course, Darwin never saw this coming, is DNA, the DNA molecule. Um, the... Uh, the uh, Microbiologist Michael Denton explains the storage capability of the DNA molecule. This blew me away when I, when I found this. He explains the storage capability. Here's what he says, quote, "...the capacity of DNA to store information that... I mean, we're blown away by our computers, aren't we? They tell me that... that, that this, this phone of mine has more computer 
I don't drive it, um, storage and stuff than, than, the, than the, the, the rocket that took him to the moon. I mean, we're amazed by that. Uh, a little pin drive, what, what you can store on that. So Denton says this, the capacity of DNA to store information vastly exceeds that of any other known system. It is so sufficient that all the information needed to specify an organism as complex as a human being weighs less than a few thousand millionths of a gram. Now, when I first read that, I thought, wow. <laughs> I thought, wow. And then I thought, okay. I googled things that weigh a gram. A raisin weighs a gram. Denton said, all the information needed to specify an organism as complex as a human being weighs less than a few thousandths, millionths of a gram. I found out that a grain of sand weighs a thousandth of a gram. Denton said a few thousand millionths of a... How tiny is that? Denton goes on and he says this, the information necessary to specify the design of all the species of organism which have ever existed on the planet number of about 1,000 million could be held in a teaspoon and there would still be room left for all the information in every book ever written. I mean, it's just kind of, kind of, kind of hard to get your head around that. A teaspoon of DNA smaller than the typical thumb drive can hold all the design information, DNA molecule. Well, that's, that's, that's something. Uh, but where did the information come from? Rocks don't have any information. Hydrogen doesn't have any information. Helium doesn't have any information. Things that the universe is made of, you know. Where did the information come from? Did it come from nothing? Well, that's what some people say. Does it make sense that the information that determines whether you were a human being or a kangaroo evolved from lifeless and unintelligent, ma unintelligent matter? That doesn't make sense. That's kind of absurd, absurd sounding. Was it more reasonable to assume that it came from an intelligent mind, a designer. You know, that's what cumulative case inference is. That's what uh, proof beyond a shadow of a doubt is. Another, another example of design is called fine-tuning. And, and this part, this really gets into some, some intricate things, really deep things. But fine-tuning is another example of design. Scientists agree that for life to exist in the universe, the universe must be perfectly balanced. 
You remember the beginning started with, they call it a big bang, and I said last week, it wasn't an explosion, it was an orderly expansion. That's what Hubble discovered. The universe is expanding. It expanded in an orderly way. In other words, it was a finely tuned event. It was a finely tuned event that would produce a universe that would produce a planet that, was, that could sustain life. A watch, your car, your phone, your mixer at home, a jet engine, all these things are finely tuned to accomplish what they're supposed to accomplish, their purpose. All the parts in those things are precisely aligned, allowing them to do what they're supposed to do. Wash clothes, amplify voices, mix, uh, mix up your, your whatever you're mixing up in that mix master thing, and, uh, and drinking or whatever. Fine, it's all finely tuned to do that. Finely tuned can be compared to a radio dial. Unless all the dials are set exactly, life would be impossible. Physicist Charles Towns said this, quote, Intelligent design, as one sees it from a scientific point of view, seems to be quite real. This is a very special universe. It's remarkable that it came out just this way. If the laws of physics were just the, the uh, I'm sorry, if the laws of physics weren't just the way they are, we couldn't be here at all. The sun couldn't be there. The laws of gravity, nuclear laws, and magnetic theory, quantum mechanics, and so on have to be just the way they are for us to be here. And there are pages and pages of the mathematical equations of if the gravity was just point zero 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 off, you know, stuff that's stuff beyond me. Well, the fact that the dials are perfectly set for life suggests that somebody set those dials. Um, after all, it seems very improbable uh, that, uh, 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 that a coincidence that just by chance all those things are set perfectly to sustain life. And the fact that there are so many coincidences, in other words, independent instances of fine-tuning, you know, that make fine-tuning really beyond question. Philosopher John Leslie pointed out clues about fine-tuning and all the different clues heaped upon clues can constitute weighty evidence. The fine-tuning argument can be summed up like this. Number one, in order for life to exist at all, the universe had to meet certain conditions. Number two, many of these conditions are extraordinarily improbable. 
Number three, their improbability is so large, in fact, that we cannot reasonably attribute their existence to pure chance. And number four, it's reasonable to attribute the conditions to a supernatural design. So, let me conclude by saying this. The design argument is really useful in witnessing. As a matter of fact, everybody, I, I, in all my research, everybody kept saying the design argument is the primary argument for the existence of God. It convinces more people. And once you can convince somebody that there is a God, there is a designer, that there is a cause, then you go from the natural theology to the revelation theology, and you begin to say, here's that God. And so it's really a good argument when you're in witnessing, when defending the faith, your apologetics, uh, uh, when you do apologetics. Because like I said, once a person understands there's a designer, then they're going to be a whole lot more open to the gospel. And today there are a lot more people who don't believe in a designer. They don't believe in an uncaused cause. They say things like the universe is self-caused. And like I said last week, for it to be, that is totally irrational because to be self-caused, it had to exist in order to cause itself to exist. And that makes absolutely no sense. No serious scientists believe that. The ones I read, none of them believe it. None of them believe it. I read of a British philosopher... His name is Anthony Flew. And the article said about him, for over 50 years, Anthony Flew was the English-speaking world's most intellectually serious public atheists. atheist. In that article, Flew was quoted. Flew said this, there just wasn't enough evidence to believe in God. And then... At 81 years old, Anthony Flew changed his whole mind. He had spent his whole life an atheist. But then when he was 81, he changed his whole mind. In a 2014 interview, Flew attributed his change to scientific evidence, in particular, evidence of intelligent design. Flew said this, I think the argument to intelligent design is enormously strong. That opened him up now to the gospel. Father, we come to you today thanking you for your goodness to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank you, Father, for your word that you've given us that, that guides and directs us. We thank you for the, the, the natural, the, the things that you've made that point to you, that point to a cause, and, and, and we thank you for these things. Father, may we all be more diligent in pursuing not just what you've revealed to us in your word, but the things that you've revealed to us in the world around us, and how to use those things in our efforts of evangelism. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We hope God has encouraged you with today's message. Thank you for joining us at the Edgemont Bible Church. We'd love to have you visit us if you're ever in the area. For directions, more information, or to support the ministry of Edgemont Bible Church, please go to our website at edgemontbiblechurch.org. That's edgemontbiblechurch, all one word, dot org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Edgemont Bible Church, where the Sunday morning message is broadcast live.